Section 29 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 59 Reformation in a Flood, Part 2. The government were a little unfortunate, too, as regarded another great reform, that of the organization of the army. Mr. Cardwell, the war minister, brought forward a scheme for the reconstruction of the army by combining under one system of discipline the regular troops the militia the volunteers and the reserve one most important part of the scheme was the abolition of the purchase system for officers commissions and the substitution of promotion according to merit except in certain regiments and in certain branches of the service outside england itself the rule was that an officer obtained his commission by purchase promotion was got in the same way an officer bought a step up in the service a commission was a vested interest a personal property the owner had paid so much for it and he expected to get so much for it when he thought fit to sell it the regulation price recognized by law and the horse guards was not by any means the actual price of the commission it became worth much more to the holder and of course he expected to get its real price not its regulation or nominal and imaginary price the regulation price was to the real price what the cost of the ticket bought at the door of an italian theatre is to the sum which has to be paid inside for a seat from which to see the play this anomalous and extraordinary system had grown up with the growth of the english army until it seemed in the eyes of many an essential condition of the army's existence it found defenders almost everywhere because the natural courage energy and fighting power of englishmen irishmen and scotchmen had made a good army in spite of this unlucky practice because the army did not actually collapse or wither away under its influence many men were convinced that the army could not get on without it the abolition of the purchase system had been advocated by generations of reformers without much success for years a stout old soldier sir de lacy evans had made an annual motion on the subject which was regarded by not a few as merely one of the necessary bores of parliamentary life more lately mr trevelyan had taken up the cause with vivacity spirit and good effect lord stanley had always supported the proposed reform as he had supported the system of open competition for appointments in the civil service but the question did not become really pressing and practical until mr gladstone on his accession to power resolved to include it on his list of reforms of course mr cardwell's proposition was bitterly and pertinaciously opposed the principle of army purchase was part of a system in which large numbers of the most influential class had a vested interest it was part of the aristocratic principle to admit men to commissions in the army by pure merit and by mere competition would be to deprive the service of its specially aristocratic character few of those who opposed the reform on this ground were actually conscious that they were fighting merely for the maintenance of a class privilege and a selfish advantage they had schooled themselves into the conviction that the aristocratic system was the only principle of existence for an english army that a system of open promotion by merit 
would be too French or too American or something of the kind, and it would fill the higher places in the service with persons of no rank and of vulgar habits, and they had worked themselves into the belief that in resisting Mr. Cardwell's measure they were performing a patriotic duty. A large number of the Conservative Party set themselves, therefore, not merely to oppose, but to obstruct the bill. They proposed all manner of amendments and raised all manner of discussions, in which the same arguments were repeated over and over again by the same speakers in almost the same words. Men who had never before displayed the slightest interest in the saving of the public money were now clamorous opponents of the bill on the ground that the abolition of purchases would render necessary the outlay of a large sum for compensation to officers thus deprived of their vested interests. This outlay the liberal government usually censured by their opponents on the ground of their pinching parsimony were quite willing to meet. Mr. Cardwell was prepared to make provision for it. Economy, however, became suddenly a weapon in the hands of some of the conservatives. The session was going on, and there seemed little prospect of the opposition being discouraged or slackening in their energy. The government began to see that it would be impossible to carry through the vast and complicated scheme of army reorganization which they had introduced, and Mr. Gladstone was resolved that the system of purchase must come to an end. It was thought expedient at last, and while the bill was still fighting its way through committee, to abandon a great part of the measure and persevere for the present only with those clauses which related to the abolition of the system of purchase. Under these conditions, the bill passed its third reading in the Commons on July 3, 1871, not without a stout resistance at the last and not by a very overwhelming majority. This condition of things gave the majority in the House of Lords courage to oppose the scheme. A meeting of conservative peers was held, and it was resolved that the Duke of Richmond should offer an amendment to the motion for the second reading of the Army Purchase Bill. The Duke of Richmond was exactly the sort of man that a party under such conditions would agree upon as the proper person to move an amendment. He was an entirely respectable and safe politician, a man of great influence so far as dignity and territorial position were concerned, a seemingly moderate Tory, who showed nothing openly of the merely partisan, and yet was always ready to serve his party. When the motion for the second reading came on, the Duke of Richmond moved an amendment declaring that the House of Lords was unwilling to agree to the motion until a comprehensive and complete scheme of army reorganization should have been laid before it. This amendment was cleverly constructed. It did not pledge the House of Lords to reject the bill. It did not directly oppose the second reading. It merely said that before passing the second reading, the House was anxious to know more fully the plans of the government for the general reorganization of the army. The government had brought in a scheme of vast reorganization and had then withdrawn nearly all of it with the avowed intention of introducing it again at a more convenient opportunity. It looked reasonable enough, therefore, that the House of Lords should hesitate about abandoning the system of purchase before knowing exactly what the government proposed to do as a supplement and consequence of so important a measure. But, of course, the object of the House of Lords 
was not to obtain further information it was simply to get rid of the bill for the present the amendment of the duke of richmond was adopted then mr gladstone took a course which became the subject of keen and embittered controversy purchase in the army was permitted only by royal warrant the whole system was the creation of royal regulation the house of commons had pronounced against the system the house of lords had not pronounced in favour of it the house of lords had not rejected the measure of the government but only expressed a wish for delay and for further information delay however would have been fatal to the measure for that session mr gladstone therefore devised a way for checkmating what he knew to be the design of the house of lords it was an ingenious plan it was almost an audacious plan it took the listener's breath away to hear of it mr gladstone announced that as the system of purchase was the creation of royal regulation he had advised the queen to take the decisive step of cancelling the royal warrant which made purchase legal a new royal warrant was therefore immediately issued declaring that on and after november first following all regulations made by her majesty or any of her predecessors regulating or fixing the prices at which commissions might be bought or in any way authorizing the purchase or sale of such commissions should be cancelled as far as regarded purchase therefore the controversy came suddenly to an end the house of lords had practically nothing to discuss all that was left of the government scheme on which the peers could have anything to say was that part of the bill which provided compensation for those whom the abolition of the system of purchase would deprive of certain vested interests for the lords to reject the bill as it now stood would merely be to say that such officers should have no compensation the lords were to use a homely expression sold to adopt a phrase which would have been good english once and would not have been too strong to illustrate their own views of what had happened they were bubbled astonishment fell upon the minds of most who heard mr gladstone's determination after a moment of bewilderment it was received with a wild outburst of liberal exaltation it was felt to be a splendid party triumph the house of lords had been completely foiled the tables had been turned on the peers they were as utterly baffled as sir giles overreach in massinger's play when pulling out the document on which he is to rely he finds it only a fair skin of parchment with neither wax nor words what prodigy is this i am o'erwhelmed with wonder an astounded peer might have exclaimed what subtle spirit hath raised out the inscription nothing was left for the house of lords but to pass the bill as quickly as possible coupling its passing however with a resolution announcing that it was passed only in order to secure to officers of the army the compensation they were entitled to receive and censuring the government for having attained by the exercise of the prerogative and without the aid of parliament the principal object which they contemplated in the bill the house of lords was then completely defeated the system of purchase in the army was abolished by one sudden and clever stroke the government were victorious over their opponents yet the hearts of many sincere liberals sank within them 
as they heard the announcement of the triumph mr disraeli condemned in the strongest terms the sudden exercise of the prerogative of the crown to help the ministry out of a difficulty and many a man of mark and influence on the liberal benches felt that there was a good ground for the strictures of the leader of the opposition mr fawcett in particular condemned the act of the government he insisted that if it had been done by a tory minister it would have been passionately denounced by mr gladstone amid the plaudits of the whole liberal party mr fawcett was a man who occupied a remarkable position in the house of commons in his early manhood he met with an accident which entirely destroyed the sight of his eyes he made the noble resolve that he would nevertheless follow unflinchingly the career he had previously mapped out for himself and would not allow the terrible calamity he had suffered to drive him from the active life of the political world his tastes were for politics and political economy he published a manual of political economy he wrote largely on the subject in reviews and magazines he was elected professor of the science in his own university cambridge he was in politics as well as in economics a pupil of mr mill and with the encouragement and support of mr mill he became a candidate for a seat in parliament he was a liberal of the most decided tone but he was determined to hold himself independent of party he stood for southwark against mr laird in eighteen fifty seven and was defeated he contested cambridge and brighton at subsequent elections and at last in eighteen sixty five he was successful at brighton he was not long in the house of commons before it was acknowledged that his political career was likely to be something of a new force in parliament a remarkably powerful reasoner he was capable notwithstanding his infirmity of making a long speech full of figures and of statistical calculations his memory was fortunately so quick and powerful as to enable him easily to dispense with all the appliances which even well-trained speakers commonly have to depend upon when they enter into statistical controversy in parliament he held faithfully to the purpose with which he had entered it and was a thorough liberal in principles but absolutely independent of the expedients and sometimes of the mere discipline of party if he believed that the liberal ministers were going wrong he censured them as freely as though they were his political opponents on this occasion he felt strongly about the course mr gladstone had taken and he expressed himself in language of unmeasured condemnation it seems hard to understand how any independent man could have come to any other conclusion the exercise of the royal prerogative was undoubtedly legal much time was wasted in testifying to its legality the question in dispute was whether its sudden introduction in such a manner was a proper act on the part of the government whether it was right to cut short by virtue of the queen's prerogative a debate which had previously been carried on without the slightest intimation that the controversy was to be settled in any other way than that of the ordinary parliamentary procedure there seems to be only one reasonable answer to this question the course taken by mr gladstone was unusual unexpected unsustained by any precedent it was a mere surprise 
it was not fair to the House of Lords, it was not worthy of the occasion, or the ministry, or the liberal principles they professed. Great stress was laid upon an opinion which was obtained from Sir Roundell Palmer in justification of the action of the government, but Sir Roundell Palmer merely gave it as his opinion that the issuing of the warrant cancelling purchase was within the constitutional power of the Crown. On that subject there could be no reasonable doubt. But that was not the question which people were discussing so eagerly. They were asking whether it was fair to begin a measure of reform on the ordinary principles of parliamentary procedure, and suddenly to bring it to a close by the unexpected intervention of the royal prerogative. On this question, the only one really at issue, Sir Roundell Palmer's letter was a condemnation, not a justification, of the course taken by the government. I should have been glad, Sir Roundell Palmer wrote to Mr. Cardwell, if it had been generally and clearly understood from the beginning that subject to the sense of Parliament being ascertained with reference to the point of compensation, the form of procedure would be that which was eventually adopted, because it is certainly an evil that the adoption of one constitutional mode of procedure, rather than another, should appear to arise from an adverse vote of the House of Lords. The introduction of the prerogative in this curious way did much to damage the influence of Mr. Gladstone's government. Everyone in the end came to approve of the principle of promotion in the army by merit, and the abolition of the anomalous system of purchase. But this great reform could at most have been delayed for only a single session by the House of Lords. It would have been carried, as the ballot was carried, the moment it was sent up a second time from the representative chamber. It is not even certain that the House of Lords, if firmly met, would have carried their opposition long enough to delay the measure for a single session. In any case, the time lost would not have counted for much. Better by far to have waited another session than to have carried the point at once by a stroke of policy which seemed impatient, petulant, and even unfair. It is evident that among the independent men of his own party, Mr. Gladstone suffered discredit by the manner in which he swept the purchase system away and bade his will avouch it. Among the many influences already combining to weaken his authority, the impression produced by this stroke of policy was not the least powerful. The ballot bill was not carried without a struggle. It was introduced by Mr. Forster on February 20, 1871, and was a measure embodying some remarkable changes. Its principal object was, of course, the introduction of the system of secret voting. This Mr. Forster proposed to do by compelling each voter to use only an official voting paper, which he was to obtain at the polling place and there alone. Entering the polling place, the voter was to go to the official in charge and mention his name and his place of residence. The official, having ascertained that he was properly on the register, would hand him a stamped paper on which to inscribe his vote. The voter was to take the paper into a separate compartment and there privately mark a cross opposite the printed name of the candidate for whom he desired to record his vote. He was then to fold up the paper in such a manner as to prevent the mark from being seen, and in the presence of the official, drop it into the urn for containing the votes. By this plan, Mr. Forster proposed not only to obtain secrecy, but also to prevent personation. 
the bill likewise undertook to abolish the old practice of nominating candidates publicly by speeches at the hustings instead of a public nomination it was intended that the candidates should be nominated by means of a paper containing the names of a proposer and seconder and eight assenters all of whom must be registered voters this paper being handed to the returning officer would constitute a nomination thus was abolished one of the most characteristic and time-honoured peculiarities of electioneering every humorous writer every satirist with pencil or pen from hogarth to dickens had made merry with the scenes of the nomination day no ceremonial could be at once more useless and more mischievous in england the candidates were proposed and seconded in face of each other on a public platform in some open street or market-place in the presence of a vast tumultuous crowd three-fourths of whom were generally drunk and all of whom were inflamed by the passion of a furious partisanship fortunate indeed was the orator whose speech was anything more than a dumb show the conservative part of the crowd usually made it a point of honour not to listen to the liberal candidate or allow him to be heard the liberal partisan in the street was equally resolute to drown the eloquence of the tory candidate brass bands and drums not unusually accompanied the efforts of the speakers to make themselves heard brickbats dead cats and rotten eggs came flying like bewildering meteors around the ears of the rival politicians on the hustings the crowds generally enlivened the time by a series of faction fights among themselves anything more grotesque more absurd more outrageous it would be impossible to imagine the bill introduced by mr forster would have deserved the support of all rational beings if it proposed no greater reform than simply the abolition of this abominable system but the ballot had long become an indispensable necessity bribery corruption intimidation were the monstrous outcome of the system of open voting yet for long years no reform had seemed more unlikely than the adoption of the ballot in mr grote's days there used to be an annual debate on the motion in favour of the ballot and mr grote generally found himself supported by a very respectable minority and by some speakers of great influence still his proposal was even then regarded by parliament and the public in general rather as a crotchet than as a practical scheme in the song of the box thomas moore made easy ridicule of grote in his ballot and oh when at last even this greatest of groats must bend to the power that at every door knocks may he drop in the urn like his own silent votes and the tomb of his rest be a large ballot box End of section twenty nine